welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. You think you need a lawyer? You probably do. Hey, Cops and Riders. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Riders podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Fran Cross, Gary Edgington, J.K. Doan, and Kathleen Kovacic. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers, all one word. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. On today's show, we travel to Texas to speak with author, podcaster, and police officer David Vergutz. David Vergutz is a disabled Army veteran, eight-year law enforcement veteran, the majority in rural Texas, and field training officer. His experiences in drug interdiction, interview, interrogation, and investigations. He's also a mental health investigator and state child abuse investigator. David gives us some unique insights into policing in small-town Texas. Today's episode, we discuss how David joined the Army at age 16 and a half, He did get his parents' permission. The injury that ended his Army career. His calling to join law enforcement. The the unique challenges and rewards to being a police officer in in a small town. Working with a variety of other law enforcement agencies in Texas, including the iconic Texas Rangers. David's writing process that has allowed him to produce a large amount of books in a short amount of time. And David's podcast, The Nightmare Engine. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. David Vergutz. That's me. That's me. You got it. All right. I pronounced it correctly. That makes me so happy. Well, is this good morning or good day? It's five in the afternoon. Well, five in the evening where I'm at. Are you just waking up or what does it look like? Yeah, I've been up for a few hours, but yeah, I'm a I'm a night shifter, so this is my morning. This is my fresh coffee. Um, get the sleep out of my eyes. <laughs> oh, do I remember those days? I worked late shift for 13 years, and then I worked that was midnight to eight. Then I worked late power, which was seven at night till three in the morning for four years, and I love that shift. I absolutely love that shift. What shift are you working right now? What hours? So we do six to six, so rotating twelves. Which I mean, it's great every other weekend to get a three day weekend, but at the, at that point you're exhausted. So it's um, <laughs> you only work 15 days out of the month, um, technically. So you're working 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. How long are you going to be on that shift for? Like In, is- indefinitely. That's that's my shift. Um, so by choice? We, no. Um, <laughs> uh, is it no, seniority it, based? It kind of. Yeah. I mean, so it kind of. It's, in a smaller department, we we tend to uh, just take whoever we can get um, because we 
tends to have lower training, lower pay, lower equipment, lower yeah. everything. And so mm-hmm. you, when you come on to sign on to the department, you sign on to pretty much a shift. Like this is what we have available. And uh, whoever had just left, you'll, the, everybody will kind of shift around to go where they want to go. Um, I prefer working at night. So it works great for me. I, I'm still full of energy and there's still things I want to do in law enforcement. And so I try to stick to the, to the night shift anyways. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know it's odd. It's odd to hear that somebody actually enjoys the night shift and, but I, I really do. Well, I worked with guys that worked midnight to eight in the morning for their entire careers. I mean, like 30 years of doing mm-hmm. that. And if I have one piece of advice is, you know, you feel like, Hey, this is the only shift for me. The other shifts suck, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you got to do what's right for you and your family. You know, that's number one, what works, you know, if you have kids, you know, all that kind of stuff, but don't be blind to the, how can I put it? The advantages of the other shifts that you may not see because you're, you know, deep into what you're doing right now. Yeah, sure. I I didn't want to go day shift. I was going to stay nights for 25 years. And, you know, I'm 17 years in and I'm going through a divorce and I had to. And I was mm. the grumpiest MFer you'd ever <laughs> want to meet at first on day shift. And then finally, somebody just, you know, another Sarge comes up to me and he's like, what's wrong with you? You know, this is the best shift and you have the best job on the department. Stop complaining. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. So, yeah. hey, I made it work. That's what you got to do, but we'll circle back to that. I want to start in your beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the East coast. Um, So I grew up in Maryland. This majority of where I was uh, living. My dad kind of bounced us around a little bit while he was in the service. Um, And so I was born in Maryland, went to Wisconsin for a little bit, California for a little bit, all for, you know, my dad's job. Um, And then uh, settled in Maryland. And then right at 16 and a half, I enlisted in the army. Um, I knew that was the only place for me. So I did a delayed entry. I was like, as soon as I can sign up, I'll sign the wow. so Actually, I didn't actually sign up. My parents had to agree to sign me up. Right. Really. Yeah. At that age. Yeah. You can't just go to a recruiter and say, hey, I'll sign me up unless you're lying about your, your age or something like that. Right. Like they used to do. So your parents were cool with you going to the army. Your dad was in the army, I assume. Yeah, he did four years of military intelligence. And then now he's a vice president of Lockheed Martin. Um, and oh, so- okay. Yeah, so they do uh, weapons and systems and cyber. Um, they're one of the largest weapons contractors on the planet. And so wow. he's one of their VPs. And I was kind of following his footsteps. I saw I saw his life um, and the things that he had. Yeah. And I said, this is this is how I can build something for myself. Because I was like, man, I am not cut out for college. I, I am not going to make it. I, I knew that right away. And 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 it, it 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 took a little bit for me to say, you know, that's OK. You know, that that college wasn't right for me. Right. Um, it wasn't right at that time. Now I'm almost done with my, my master's degree. So, I mean, it just, it, it circles back, you know, um, it does. It really does. You know, I think, you know, I had a uh, Gabby Friedson on the show and he's, uh, from Israel and he was talking about the service component over there for the young people. And mm-hmm. when you're in high school, yes, right? it is what happened when he was in high school it was mandatory that he take an extracurricular. Now, that does not include like sports or, you know, something fun. You had to go out in the community and serve. You mm-hmm. had to ride in an ambulance, you know, become he became an EMT. You could 
ride with the police. You could go on a fire engine. You could work in a soup kitchen. You could work in a hospital, you know, and get some really good training. And then once you graduated from high school, you had a men, I think it was a mandatory three years and women, it was two years when he was, maybe it's different now. I have no idea, but most went in the military and, you know, some of them did like the fire department, the police department, whatever the case may be, but it was service. Sure. And I think that's something that a lot of people could really benefit from. You know, I keep on saying this over and over, but boy, that just gives you such a feeling of community and you don't have some of the problems that you may, well, that you do have today when you're serving for a common purpose and you're serving with people from every kind of background you can think of. I think that's just like one of the best things that could happen to a young person. But then there's also people that are you know, like a fish into water for college. I was not, I was a train wreck. You know, yeah. I worked two jobs out of high school and I waited a year to go to college and I probably should have waited a few more years, Yeah, but it's I mean, what I, you thought you should do. Yeah. I, I did it part-time because um, when I got out of the service, I got out, I, I got hurt. Um, I was actually stayed for a long time. I was on my way to warrant officer flight school to go, uh, to go fly helicopters. Oh, geez. And, okay. And I got hurt. Um, so I was actually signing up to be a lifer. I was going to go military intelligence and then move over to, a th- I, I was at Intel, um, but I was going to move over to a three-letter agency. And so my intent was always yeah. to go to a three-letter agency. Um, but a three-letter and, agency like CIA or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was the whole intent, CIA from the beginning. Um, okay. And um, versus my dad, who went more on the private side, still kind of works with the agencies and stuff for, you know, because they're all kind of intermingle. Sure. Um but it, that was always my intent. And so when I got hurt, I was like, okay, so I need to go right to um, uh, either an agency or a small contractor. And so I left the service and became a contractor. And at that time, I didn't need a degree. You know, I had 60 credits, I think, from the Army, um, mm-hmm. 60 and just because military intelligence school and basic training, they give you a bunch of credits. So I had a bunch of credits. I just I didn't feel a need to finish. And then all of a sudden I was like, man, I could really use a degree right now since I'm being doing this author thing. I actually had a, a personal training business before. And I was like, I could really use this, this, this knowledge, um, from, from uh, a business degree. And so I finally settled on business and, okay. um, went and got that done to really help with the, um, uh, the fitness business. But, but I realized too, it was really going to help me in authorship. It ended up turning out that, that was really useful there too. So sure. And then, now what years were you in the army? Uh, 2009 to the, uh, 12 or 13. I can't remember. How did you get hurt? If you don't mind me yeah, asking. Um, I got pushed out of a truck. Actually, I was, I was, we were out on our, <laughs> on our way to a, a training exercise. I don't have a, I don't have a war story, you know? Um, yeah. um, we were on our way to a training exercise and I got pushed out of the back of an LMTV. So that's about eight feet, nine feet off the ground. And then right. I had all my, all my equipment on my back. Oh, and so when God. I got when I got pushed out and I landed, um, I landed so hard that my spine twisted and con- condensed. Oh, 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 yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. So there was pain management, physical therapy, um, a bunch of visits with neurosurgeons to see if I was a candidate and everything else. And um, that didn't happen. And so, so you went from more or less a broken spine to being a physical trainer. Yes. Um, and a personal so, trainer. Yeah. Yeah. And so my intent behind that was, um, I, a doctor told me I was never going to walk again. And I said, wow. okay, I'll say, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. And um, anyways, I, I lost a bunch of weight that helped too. I wasn't overweight, but losing weight helped strengthening my back instead of protecting it. Um, helped okay. 
myself too and learning as much as I could about the human body. I said, if I'm going to have to live with this the rest of my life, and that's what he said, the doctor said, he goes, even if you can walk again, you're going to be in pain for the rest of your life. And I said, okay, well, I don't want to take medication for pain management my whole right. life. So I guess I'm going to be in pain. It's going to be who I am. And so that's what I wanted to learn everything I could about the human body. And so I went into personal training and I said, let me add strength instead of protecting it. You know, I do protect it, but in a different way, you know, yeah. strength is so important and keeping myself fit. Um, and then um, that's kind of where it all bled into a calling from the, I, I like to say, I, I have no shame in saying that my call to law enforcement was a calling from the Lord because I was making great money in doing Intel work. Don't get me wrong. I was, I had the job I wanted. I was doing what I wanted when I got out of the service. So you were working as a contractor for what, like Blackwater or something like that, or um, more on the Intel side. So not necessarily on the operation side, but on the intelligence side, the, the goal was to get into the operations of course, but I was more Mm -hmm. on the Intel side because that's where I had qualifications. So Um, who did you work for? Could you say uh, just a company out of white sands missile range? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so that's in New Mexico. Yeah. Well, now, did you deploy overseas or was that all stateside? No, it was all stateside. And okay. it was only, it was only temporary. I only did it for about two years or a year or two um, before I decided, I was like, I'm going to go become a cop. Cause so interesting. Um, I interviewed for the CIA. Um, and so I love telling people about that because it's not as spooky as people make it seem. So, right. You know, like they, I have a good buddy that did the same. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was basically some aptitude tests. And then they sent me an unmarked package to my front door. <laughs> and it, it said, like, you applied for the company. And I was like, that's all it said. I was, And it gave yeah. me a location for an interview and kind of gave me some mm-hmm. instructions. And so I had to drive all the way up to Dallas. Um, oh. And it was in the basement of a rented out Marriott. That's awesome. And and during this, it was 30 of us. And they basically made us watch the CIA We're Cool video from the website that anybody okay. can watch. All and right. they gave us a note card and a pen, and there, that was it. And then it had nothing to do with, there was nothing ever related back to that video. And mm. then we went on to um, uh, the one-on-one interviews. And I remember doing this interview because um, the first question the lady asked, she looked at my stuff and she said, so what do you want to do? And that was a really weird question to hear. I already knew what I wanted to do. I was applying for a job called operations officer, which was exactly what it sounds like. It was there, right. you know. It wasn't their paramilitary. It was more on the operational side, the intel mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of the combination. Sure. For lack of a better term, the James Bond stuff, if there yeah. is any. Um, and she said, um, and, I, and I thought how weird that question was. I was like, this is unlike any interview I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I'm not getting this job, am I? And she goes, no, sir. And I said, <laughs> why am I here? I said, so why am I here? Yeah. Exactly. And she goes, because we wanted to talk to you. And I said, you couldn't call me. Yeah, um, really. An email, you know, uh, another unmarked package to my front door. Sure, or something. sure, sure. <laughs> it sounds really outlandish, but I wish this was a joke, but it's not because I remember how much time, like I had to take off time from work, the five hour drive to Dallas. Oh, sure. To, I mean, it was just, it, it was a time suck and I'll never forget this. And so this is the life changing moment for me. She goes, you know, um, I said, so, so why did you want to talk to me? She goes, because we want to let you know that this isn't the right job for you, but there is a place for you here. And I said, okay. So she goes, so what do you want to do? And I said, since I'm not getting this job, can I be brash? And she goes, yes. I said, you know that shit you see on TV? She's like, I want to do that. And she goes, we have that. This job is not that. So the the job, she said, we have that, but this isn't it. And I said, okay, so how do I get to that? She goes, well, you have the intel. That's great. You've got some, some military training. That's great. 
you're young and you're you're eager and you look good on paper interviewing. So that's great because I'd worked like two years on my resume. Wasn't everybody wow. else was out drinking and partying in the army? <laughs> I was taking college classes and learning how to interview. So I mean, okay. I was I was planning, you know. Um, sure, sure. And um, she goes, I remember. I'll never, I'll never forget this because it changed my life. She said, you you need some other experience that you can only get by being on the street. You want that experience to to come here and be ready. She goes, go become a local cop. She goes, go become a local cop because you will learn more there than you will from us in training. She goes, learn how to uh, read people, learn how to fight, learn how to talk to people, learn how to get people to work with you and on your side. Sure. She said, learn all these skills and then come back. Well, I did exactly that. I left and I, and I quit my job on a Friday and by a stroke of God, which is probably not going to last long enough in this, for this interview, but I went, I was in the Academy on Monday. That's unheard of. Yeah, it is. Um, so uh, the long story short was I met all the qualifications, but I didn't know any better. And the gentleman that was interviewing me is a good, a good friend. I said, this is all I have left. I have nothing. I just quit my job. I'm going through a divorce. I have no money. I've got my GI bill and a will. <laughs> I said, I've got my, my education and a will. I need to do this because I had already been looking at law enforcement previously to this because okay. I was unhappy in my job. Yeah. And then this lady telling me from the CIA, because that was a hold that was my holdup. You know, I was waiting CIA. This is it. Interview, 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 you know, and then I, I could have some hope, you know, in my job and intel. And um, I called him uh, and Frank. He's a good friend of mine. And I, it sounds like I'm going to go down, teach him um, some report writing classes at the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, um, you know, it, he goes, if anything is wrong with the application or you lie about anything, you're still going to have to pay the funds and we'll kick you out. I said, sure. that's fine. I'll sit on the floor. Like, I just want to be a cop. I said, <laughs> I do not care. I, I I don't even know what a police car looks like on the inside, but I don't want to drive one. You know, like, sure. I've never been arrested. I've never been pulled over, but I knew I wanted to do it. And that was seven, eight years ago. And I never went back to the CIA. I never once looked at Intel ever again. I, I made half the money I've ever made. And I never once turned my turned back to it. Well, it's not too late. How old are you? 30. Oh, yeah. You're, it's not too late for you. If you ever have the inclination, you know, you could always go back to that. Oh, I know. I'm having way too much fun. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> that's important. That is important. So what did your, you know, your dad was in the army. Mm-hmm. What did your parents say about, you know what, I'm doing this contracting stuff. You know, I am going to go be a cop now. They thought I was nuts. Okay. I thought I was nuts, but here's the thing too, is that I learned then when I told them that and said, Hey, I'm in the Academy and I'm fixing to be a cop. And they said, well, I mean, I, I guess that makes sense. What about your back? And I said, I'm, I'm hurting. Don't get me wrong. I'm hurting and I will be hurting, but I need to do this, this is just the sacrifice I have to make. I, I, I don't care. And, um, I said, I'm learning about, I'm learning about my injury. I'm learning how to maintain it. I'm learning how to, uh, pain management and stuff. So um, I don't take any medication. Um, I work out frequently. Um, and so I said, I'll, I'll make do with the pain. It's just a, something the part of the sacrifice you have to make in law enforcement. And I, I, I took that as, I was like, this is something I still have to do. And so and when I told them about that, they said, well, did you know that your dad and I actually had planned to go LAPD ourselves? Oh, and your so mom they, and dad, mom and dad, they were going to go LAPD together. Oh, I wow. had no idea. And okay. until that moment, until they told me, and then, um, and then uh, they thought it was crazy again on the second time um, when I told them about where I was going after I'd graduated the academy. Um, so in Texas, where I'm a cop, we have something called TCOL, which is our governing body, is Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. This is our governing okay. body that governs our licenses. Well, TCOL has a website where you can list all the openings for your department. 
And so there's a hundreds of them up there. People can apply and you can look at the the pay and the, the yeah. allocations and all that. I wanted to be a cop so bad. I didn't care where I went. I didn't know anything <laughs> about, I didn't know anything about the regions. I didn't know anything about hiring. I just know whatever job offer I was going to get, I was going to move because I was in the military. I'm a nomad. I can, I can make my home wherever okay. my family's on the East coast. I was young and single and, 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 uh, I, I had enough money to move. And so I started the top of the roster and the first job up there is a county called Briscoe County. It, so if if you didn't Google it, you never knew it existed. Um, okay. And so I had start, I applied for like the first 10 or 15 jobs. The first one to call me back is Briscoe County. And so that's how I ended up in rural Texas. <laughs> I applied for the top down. You know, most people research, they'll research, you know, oh, yeah. go Dallas or, or Austin or whatever. They'll research yeah. these agencies. Sure. Uh, oh, I'll go Dallas because it pays $10,000 more. Or I'll go here. Mm. I didn't care. I did not care. I made $32,000 a year to start. Ugh, that's God. it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's not a lot for what you're doing. No. That's for sure. But, but I mean, you can say that, but is there ever enough, though? It's never enough. It's never enough. And I don't say that in a bad way. I just mean that right. like, anybody who could always ask for more money, it's there. I could always ask for more money, but it's never about the money. It has to do with a combination of can is it giving you the lifestyle you enjoy? Well, that's and, the thing, you know. It's for me, it was like okay, I live in a city where the public schools are pretty much inhabitable, so you have to send your kids to private schools. That's back sure. when we had residency; you had to live in the city where right. you were policing, so that limited your your choices. Yeah, so okay, two kids in private school touching and you know what you're not really a good parent unless your kids are in some kind of club sport where you're spending a thousand dollars every weekend on hockey or soccer or whatever because that would make you a bad parent if you didn't do that like you said it's your lifestyle but sometimes you're you're forced into a situation of course and yeah yeah, it it takes it it takes a toll i'll tell you that much but anyways so you find this police department you're done with your training and can you say like where is have you been there since or have you uh, moved around no i've i've moved around because i i just kind of went like you were talking about lifestyle i went where my life said i should go i didn't ever try to go against the grain that was something that was important for me um because there was still there was a lot of stuff i wanted to do um and so i was at briscoe county for about two and a half years and was that a was sheriff's deputy or sheriff's office yeah okay so it was me, myself, uh, and and the sheriff and my partner, <laughs> me, myself. So myself, the sheriff, and the and my partner. There were three of us. Wow. Um, and I was working, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week because we were <laughs> just con because if if we were I was on call for two and a half years straight. Because when one of us was on duty, the other one was off. And guess who's their backup? You know, my backup was a lot of times forty five minutes away in bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh god you know, um because we were so rural but i had everything from um i had everything i'm from from murders to child abuse to barking dogs i had everything and yeah yeah when you work in an agency that small if you catch it you clean it it is yours right you know? yep. and so i love I, I love 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 that saying if you catch it you clean it because you know yep. i was a sergeant for 17 years and nothing made me more angry than bosses that would go around and kick something up and just hand it over to the cop and say, Hey, there you go. Yeah. You know, or, you know, it's like, again, you catch it, you clean it, which means, you know, the hours and hours and hours of paperwork and drudgery yeah. after the five minutes of the chase, you know, right. 
So yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying there. I totally I mean, get that. Even when I'm training with, even when I'm training rookie cops, like I, I, you caught it, you're going to clean it. I will help you walk through it, but you need this experience. You need to sure. learn how to do it on your, your, your own. So, and on top of it, it is your work. You know, my work is to make sure that you don't die. So that's, sure. that's our, that's how we can share the workload here. But your job is still, if it's your case, you need to be able to see it through. Now, in some agencies, they have you pass it off to a detective and stuff, which I never understood. I'm like, that seems to me might be some information lost in translation, but in agencies like, um, in, in Austin, I know there are 92 calls backed up right now. Um, for Austin PD, they don't have time to go and follow up on cases because oh, yeah, absolutely. Hot, call yes. to, hot call to hot call. So it's right. like, I get it. I just don't like it. So that's kind of why I've always, <laughs> that's why I've always stuck with small departments because, and, and there's another factor to that too. And that's the relationship that I get with the locals that I cannot get in a large department. We'll be right back. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a motley collection of strangers come together to sit in judgment for what becomes the longest trial in state history. A man stands accused of murdering his wife by antifreeze poisoning. Along the way, these strangers find more in common than anyone expected, evolving into something beyond a simple jury of peers. One year later, they reunite, only to find that they've been poisoned by what suspiciously looks like antifreeze. Is this revenge for their verdict, or forewarning of something more sinister to come? The clock is ticking, and as time winds down, vengeance turns wickedly ironic. Inspired by the real-life jury experience of author Ken Humphrey, The Breakfast Jury is a fast-paced summer novel guaranteed to leave readers guessing until the last page. Pick up this murder mystery now at KenHumphrey.com. Peek behind the curtain of a sordid murder that will make you wonder, did that really happen? Again, that's KenHumphrey.com. So you started in the three-person department. Where'd you go from there? So I saw it. I had an opportunity. I knew somebody who knew somebody. And he said, hey, we've got an opening in this mental health division, which was kind of a, a something interesting. I was interested in it. gets yeah. me a certification. So I became a mental health peace officer, which means I was pretty much an expert on people who were trying to kill themselves or kill other people. Okay. And so for I went over to San Angelo, Tom Green County, um, and I basically did nothing but fight people for an entire year. Yeah. Um, and we didn't carry in mental health, like our unit specifically, we had to be really, really good at number one, um, number one, using our, our, our words to be able to talk to people, Absolutely. especially people who are, who are, who are not in the right state of mind, who are, um, you know, they've got drugs or, or, or mental health um, issues going on. So we had to be number one, very, very good at communicating. And sometimes when it was done communicating, all you had was your tools available and we did not carry tasers. This just wasn't our unit. The mm -hmm. patrol officers carried tasers. So we carried pepper spray in ourselves. And so I never used pepper spray except on dogs. So it was ourselves. So we fought every single day for like for 12 months. Oh, um, but that's, I mean, that's the state of mental health in Texas. It's just one of those things that's it's up and coming. It's getting better. Okay. Um, but it is a much needed thing. So now every officer coming out of Texas law enforcement academies are coming out as mental health certified officers. So they get 40 hours of intensive mental health training to try and. Yeah. We, ca to we call it up here crisis intervention training. 
we CIT have the same thing. Yeah. So we have the mental health and then we've got the CIT. So we've got yeah. both. So the mental health is, certifies you as an officer. So we can do things called emergency detentions where somebody. Yeah. We all do is, that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know a lot of agencies that it, it just depends on, it's normally a name difference. It all does the same sure. thing, but it's yep. normally just a name. So yeah. Yeah. So if, all the officers weren't getting that originally. They weren't really? able to do the emergency detentions. They were no only kidding. getting the CIT. Yeah, they're okay. only getting the CIT. And so now they're all getting the mental health, which is great. Um, so I have, I don't know, hundreds of hours of mental health training at this point. I mean, I've got, I don't know, five or six thousand hours of me- of training in general. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of the things you stack up and and mental health is just one you refresh and refresh and refresh as sure. much as you can. Very good. So you went to there and now where did you land? Like where are you at now? So I, I am just west of Austin, um, out in the countryside, the Highland Lakes area is what they call it, um, at another small department that um, I knew the chief from years back and the stars aligned. I actually, um, I was at a university for about a year as a university cop, and I was there specifically because I thought my wife was going to be going to school there. They would give us benefits. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, you betcha. And so we chose a different nursing school for her because she wanted to be a nurse. She's also a police officer. Um, she wanted to go to nursing. And when she decided that she wasn't uh, going to go to that nursing school, I was like, well, I'll stick around here to at least give the chief, you know, a year of good service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I stuck around and I wrote, I think, six or seven books while I was there. And then I <laughs> okay. I finished off more than half of my MFA. Um, and so and then I was like, look, the chief called me up. He's offered me a lot more money and him and I go way back. And he's been he's been asking me to come over to help him for a long time. And so I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to drop the I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and, and do this now. And um, I still work over there um, part time just to help out when they need it um, at the university because I just I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a new part of law enforcement I hadn't gotten to experience as a university cop. Okay. Um, and so I was now I'm back on the streets again, deep nights, and and so I, I bounced around a little bit, but only when my life took me there. Like um, I came out to this area because my wife, I met her while I was a mental health peace officer in San Angelo, and she made way more money than I did, and sure. so and she had a kiddo in a house, and I was like, well. I'm going to move out here now. And so that's okay. So we just kind of, kind of followed the, the natural pe- progression of life, you know, and instead sure. of trying to, to try to pigeonhole myself, I just kind of did, did wherever I was called to be. You Excuse are a free dogs. spirit, mister. That's for sure. <laughs> now, as far as the department you're at right now, how big of a department is it? like how many sworn officers are working there? What's the rank structure? What does it look so like? So we have six on the beat. And then we've got uh, five reserves and the reserves do work. Um, so a lot of times we'll have two officers on. So we have a chief and a sergeant and then patrol. Um, and we're our our town, our little town here. Um, so there's 11 total. So but our, our little town here had. Oh, shoot, had 2000 people was the size for the longest time. Okay. And now we have two big subdivisions getting put up. I mean, a thousand houses a piece within mm. the next two years because there was this land mass that was bought up and had been locked in this weird estate thing for a long time. And okay. so and so when it got unlocked and they sold it, well, the the developers are developers have figured out we have a little honey hole here because we're right on the water. And we're okay. 45 minutes from Austin and people didn't, you know, oh, sure. to realize and that Austin now. is growing like a weed. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of so our department, we're probably fixing to get five or six more officers within the next just couple of years. And so we are growing. Um, OK. And and it's it's really great. Um, you know, like I said, it, you can get into as much or as little as you want. 
Um, it just depends, you know, it just depends on what your kind of your goals and your specialties are and what you enjoy doing. I'm kind of a fan of investigations. So I'm trying my, to, yeah, that was my next question. Do you have like formal detectives there no, or detective? Like said, you, you catch it, you catch it, you clean it. Our sergeant, okay. he's more of a canine guy. He likes his dope. He likes his drugs. Um, so he does mostly that, but I've kind of stepped up and said, look, I said, if we need to do formal investigations, if we need to do interrogations, I'm your guy. Um, I enjoy it. I enjoy writing reports. I'm weird like that. I don't know. It might be the fact that I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, so I, I they don't. Let's put it this way. I've right. Got, uh, those officers, I'm I'm going to be probably looking over the reports because they don't like writing them. And I really do. And I think it's important. So um, I know it may not sound uh, as interesting to, to them to write a report, but it really is interesting to me because it is storytelling. I mean, it is to every regard storytelling. So not yeah. fictional of course not fictional yeah no 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 it's quite real and you know the thing about police reports you cannot downplay the importance because you know your whole reputation is on your report yeah somebody absolutely. looks at your police report and there's going to be a lot of eyes looking at your police report okay mm-hmm. so you know you arrest me for you know some kind of dope offense okay great you know i'm in a car you see something or you ask me permission to go through the car, you find a kilo of cocaine in the trunk of my car. All right. So you have to connect the dots as a police officer. Okay. How did this happen? So your boss is going to read that report. Then from there, the, whoever is going to charge it, do you have district attorneys or who, who, who does that? Yeah, we've got, you? we've got DAs for our felonies and then county okay. attorneys for our misdemeanors. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Say so it's a felony. So you have to present this case to the DA. Am I correct? Yes. Okay, then what they're going to do is read your reports yeah. and they're going to judge you on that report in, unless they know you. You know, after a while, you start developing the relationships with these DAs and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Dave knows what he's doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'll kind of glance through it and it's like, okay, sounds good. But if you're a new face or they're a new face, you know, all they have is that police report that's standing in front of them. So that's important. Then you go to the motions hearing. You know, you know, there's going to be a, a defense attorney saying, hey, you know what? Dave really didn't have probable cause to go into my trunk or he didn't have a probable cause to stop me in the first place. Yeah. And what they're going to do is look at the police report because the defense gets that police report as well. I mean, there's so many eyes that go on it. it like I said, it can't be understated. You know, it's not glamorous. It's not no. fun. It's but and it can be drudgery. And when you're on hour 20 of your day and you're writing a report, boy, that's tough trying to make yeah. it legible. It yeah. just makes sense. Yeah. And I have to assume that seven years down the line, that somebody at the, at the last minute will want to look at this report. And I'm not going to remember. I barely remember what I ate yesterday. Exactly. And, and these reports are so important to me because I have been torn up on the stand because yep. I didn't write a good report. Um, and so and clarity. And clarity. I mean, once once you've been up on the stand, you've had your <laughs> reputation attacked, even though that guy is guilty as all hell. There's yep. no chance in, in, that he is not guilty. This is all just fun and games because you wrote a crappy report. I can tell you that after that report, I have not had one report kicked back, not kicked back, but I mean, challenged by defense attorney. Right. Because of the quality of the report. Normally, Absolutely. it's because the defendant wants to go to court. So I've never once been challenged on it ever since I started making my reports as clean and as clear as possible. And 
And you know what? And I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that that defense attorney is going to look at it and say, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I well, don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to defend this thing, you know, go against this thing. I was sitting in a prelim and you know, it's assholes and elbows. There's people all over the place. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to a defense attorney and she's looking over this police report and it was mine. She didn't know. She didn't know. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and says, I'm so effed. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she says, I got nothing. Who? And she's like, oh my God, whoever wrote this report did. Yeah. You know, she was like saying all this cool stuff. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, he's a pretty cool dude. And she looked at my nameplate and she's like, oh my God. And I'm yeah, like, embarrassing. She's like, it doesn't matter. My client never showed up. So there's going to be a warrant anyways for him. So yeah. it's a moot point. And I'm like, all right, well, thanks for the compliment. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you're in a small town. Sure. You know, it's unique. Some of the challenges that you're going to have as far as backup goes, like typically if you're calling on the air for help, how long does that take somebody to come back you up? Um, so every, every place has been a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. I could say where I'm at, like when I first mentioned Briscoe County, our backup is 45 minutes away in bed, you know, so you <laughs> yeah. got to wake them up and then yeah. have them unless there's somebody who's already rolling. You know, maybe the game warden's out. Maybe there's a trooper out. We had one game warden, one trooper, and they both covered six to eight counties apiece up there. Oh, my God. Okay. So, I mean, so it just depends. Out here, um, right now, we can get our sergeant. He lives in town now, and he he's weird. He listens to his radio 24-7. I guess he goes to sleep listening to it. Um, <laughs> okay. But he'll he'll hop in his car, and he'll be there in a, heart, in a heartbeat probably within 10 minutes. Um, 10 minutes our, is a long time if you're fighting. It is a long somebody. time. I've, I fought That's somebody. That's a hell of a long time. I fought somebody inside the road at three o'clock in the morning, drunk guy, um, and fought him for eight and a half minutes. And it was, it felt like That's, a lifetime. And you're gassed after that. You're done. Oh, I was exhausted. He had drunk strength going. So he, yeah. he was, uh, he was tossing me around and, <laughs> and, um, luckily he was just fighting because he was, he was, he was drunk and a jerk. He wasn't fighting to try and kill me or nothing. He was hurting he's, me, but he wasn't, I was probably I didn't, trying to get away. I'm guessing. I think that's what it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like enough. There's two major fights when it comes to cops you know, when somebody's getting physical with you one and it's the most prevalent is they're trying to get away. Yeah. They don't want to go to jail when the handcuffs come out and it's arrest time. That's yep. when usually the battle begins, or if it's just an asshole and they want to harm you. Yes. Yeah. You know, that happens too, but yes. you got to be ready for either. Uh, so backup is a ways away. Yeah. Um, lately, lately, and, and, and our, our little, uh, there's another, so our little town is centered. We're on a bunch of other little towns. I mean, but there's not okay. a lot of the highways are not very well interconnected. And so mm. even the neighboring town, which is only two miles away, it's still going to take them sometimes when they're in a residential area on the other side of the river, like it's going to take them rolling code down the main highway. Yeah. It's probably going to take them 15 minutes. That's rolling code, rolling hot in the middle of the night. You know, that's right. not even during the daytime during traffic. With traffic. Hours, you know? Yep. You know? Absolutely. So, yep. Absolutely. It's not because they're not close by. It's just there's no good way to, there's no good highways to connect. There's no county right. roads to zip down. It's just, it's just the way we're built. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. So, yeah. Working in a big city, if I called for help, I knew within a couple of minutes the cavalry was coming. Yeah. yeah. So that was a great feeling. You know, you're getting shot at, you're fighting with somebody, whatever, you know, all I had to do was get on the air and yeah. I knew people would be coming as long as the dispatcher knew where I was, you yeah. know? So there's that medical stuff. Yeah. Now working in a big city again, if I got called to a shooting, a stabbing, any kind of trauma, 
I'd have paramedics or EMTs there, you know, a fire engine within a minute to two minutes. What's it yeah. like over by you? About the same. Yeah. So we've really, got, okay. we've got good paramedics. So we have paid services and we have volunteers. Mm. And a lot of times the paid services will beat the volunteers, even though the volunteers will be hanging out at the station. Oh, okay. And so we have most of our fire is volunteers. And then, um, cause we are still technically rural. Um, so we have fire that's volunteers. Most of them are cross-trained paramedics. Um, they take a little bit of a while cause they have to get the wet box. And so that just takes yeah. a while to roll that. Sure. Now the ambulance service, they'll be with their, they'll be with their 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, they're pretty, that's pretty quick for us. Um, see 10 or 15 minutes is a long time. It is. It is. Yeah. But for us, I mean, and I mean, from coming from 45 minutes, I mean, that yeah. was pretty good. true and true. So <laughs> are you guys trained as EMTs as well? No. Um, but if we mentioned like a lot of us, of course we have trauma care, you know, we can do immediate sure. wounds. Yeah. We do life limb and eyesight type things like on the spot, but as far as carrying equipment and providing medical care, um, for each other, we'll do whatever we got. We carry our own medical kits, but mainly for each other, but we won't okay. touch medical for somebody else for the liability. Um, okay. even if we're trained EMTs, paramedics, we'll do, we'll do, of course, we'll do CPR. We'll do, um, the basic you know, stuff, we, stop bleeding, we'll basic, you know, stop the, the bleeding yeah. CPR, uh, AEDs. I mean, I put band-aids on kids, you know, I'll, sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give a gauze pad to somebody with an alcohol pad. If they got a scrape from getting in a fight with somebody, like I'll do stuff like that. But as far yeah. as like about starting an IV line and checking pulses and all this, and, and now we leave the paramedics to do, it. we just try to provide as much help as we can within our skill set, but we stay firmly on the law enforcement side. Even if we okay. are trained paramedics or EMTs, we don't carry a paramedic or EMT bag. We just carry our stuff to help each other. And, okay. and, and the reason why is that um, if, if somebody is hurt in general, the ambulance is, they're calling 911. They're hurt within a, a reasonable time frame for the ambulance to be there for, for helping. Yeah. If they're hurt and it's a law enforcement incident, often there's still an incident happening at the time. So there's, somebody we have to go and arrest somebody we have to go and fight or sure. somebody to go find. So like, I don't have time to, to, to patch up Susie because Sam just beat the crap out of her and I have to go find Sam. So, right. I mean, that's, that's just kind of, it, it's just it a is. weird, yeah, it is. It's unfortunate. I wish we could do everything because we're always the first on scene. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the wet box is really good at destroying our evidence on a fire. So that's really great, <laughs> yeah. but, but we're always first on scene and that's okay. That's just the nature of it. Now in Texas, you guys have a lot of different law enforcement and, you know, you're in a smaller department, so I'm guessing there's mutual aid. Of course. You know, if, what does that look like? So we've got local PD. Um, we've got anybody. So I don't know if it's unspoken rule, but anybody, if you're, if you're police and you see another police on the side of the road, you, if, if they don't give you a code for everything's all right and to put the hands up, Hey, I'm good. Stop out with them. Hey, I'm police. Sure. You good? You good? And that's everybody. So we, I always have backup rolling by that somebody off duty or maybe coming off service. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Yeah. And, but we have, so we got that. It's the unspoken. Then we've got game wardens and then we've got our state troopers, right? Who are highway guys or our traffic cops. They really, really like writing tickets. Um, <laughs> and then, um, and crime and, and, and crash scenes. They love crashes. I, yeah, they can have them. Yeah. Absolutely. Enjoy. Dewey's, you yep. want it? Enjoy the Dewey. Yeah. Exactly. You know? You know, you get paid $110,000 to start to go work Dewey. So you do it, yep. you know, um, you get, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the hats, what you're paying for 110 grand for that hat <laughs> and, okay. uh, and the, and the shine boots. But now the, um, and then we've got the state police who are, who are stateies and they, they work our park patrols, um, their work, our state parks, our state parks are so big, man. I used to, 
when I was out in Briscoe County, I was part of the search and rescue because I was, we have all volunteers. And if you know anything about old towns, old little towns in Texas, the folks there are often old. It's just the way it, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that derogatory. I just mean, it's just an older generation that tends sure. to stick around in these small towns. And so I'm one of the youngest people. And so I did search and rescue too. And we would do search and rescue with our state park police. We'd have volunteer firefighters. We have an EMS if we had, we were lucky. And a lot of times just a couple of ranchers who had some boots on. That's how we'd go do search and rescue. I mean, that's okay. what we had. Sure. People get lost in our state parks and we have to go find them. And um, so we got the state guys. Um, we've got river authority. We've got the railroad police. Um, the R- river authority, it just depends. They're on, on the location, but generally they are, um, uh, I, I think they're state state certified. Um, they are police. They are batched, but I don't know who carries the commission. I think it's the state. Okay. Um, we've got cattle cops. There are, are cattle rangers um, out here. Okay. I mean, when you're talking about 30 head of cattle, you're talking about huge amounts of money. Sure. You're talking about two or three grand a cow. I mean, that's a lot of cattle to go missing. And unfortunately, right. it's not easy to identify them once they're un- not tagged anymore. Whose cow is that? It doesn't have a tag in its ear. Like who, how do you know okay. it's yours? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, hey, I watch the- Yellowstone. I know how this goes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, th- we got the cattle rangers, we got the regular rangers. Um, and then of course we got, we got border patrol. Um, and so, yeah, we've got, we got the school cops, the SROs. Um, do you have marshals? Not we federal some marshals, lo- but some location have, have city marshals still, but they perform yeah. mainly the same duties as a chief of police. They do the same thing. We got constables, which are, you know, per precinct. And then of course we got sheriffs and they're by County. And so, wow. um, yeah, it's confusing to me. My head's spinning. That's a lot. It is, um, but you don't encounter about you, you encounter them per region. So it's about half of what you would think that you would find. Like you're not going to run into a constable on every call and a sheriff on every, a deputy on every call and a cattle okay. ranger. I've met one cattle ranger in seven years. I've met okay. three three regular rangers in three years. Like you just don't run into these people all the time. You just now, you know, know, like Texas Rangers. That's a pretty iconic, sure. You know, setup. Their job mostly is investigations. Correct. Right. And so they do there. I look at them first as a resource. So they're an asset like on small on mm-hmm. high crimes in those small towns. I'd ask them to come in to help with the investigation, either from a guidance perspective or just take over. You know, hey, I've got as far as I can where I'm comfortable. Can you help? And they'll come in and they'll help. Um, or they'll they do things like investigating other departments. They'll investigate high crimes. They'll investigate crimes against children. They'll, they they are an investigative body. Yeah. OK. Wow, that's a lot. So, you know, I was looking at your uh, bio stuff. You're an FTO. How long have you been doing that? Um, it's one of the first things I wanted. So I've been doing it ever since about three years in. So I've been an FTO okay. for about four years. Um, Why? I like training new cops. I think it's, I think you have to want to, you know, you have to want to, just like people who want to teach something, you have to want to teach the subject. You can't force somebody to do it. They don't make a great teacher. And I think keeping, I think if I can save cops young cops are making the same mistakes i did early on they'll have a long and fruitful career like here's all the life lessons that i learned on the beat that now you don't have to learn it you don't have to learn it the hard way you know write a good report you know um, don't be complacent you know just these lessons so i really really enjoy teaching that um yeah as far as your fto program goes like for us you know you're fresh out of the academy you do six weeks with an fto on like say late shift then you do another six weeks on a different shift with a different FTO. Is that pretty much what you guys do? No. Um, oh, okay. Big departments can afford that because they have plenty of FTOs, they have plenty of cars, they have plenty of resources. Small right. departments, a lot of times it's, you're going to ride with us until you're comfortable. And 
And then I'm going to shadow you and I'm going to back you. You're going to get a car to yourself. You're going to answer it. I'm going to back you on every call because you don't get those call to call every day. You have to kind of piece it together as they come out. And so you might do some day shift with some folks. You might do some night shifts. And then from there, I mean, it just depends on who's an FTO and who wants to be an FTO at the same time. So um, a lot of FTO programs are not as well put together because we the, the resources in a small town just aren't there. Okay. I, I didn't have an FTO in Briscoe County. I had the academy and the sheriff walks up to me and he goes, <clears throat> I haven't had a vacation in like two years. So <laughs> you're going to go, you're going to go down to the shack down there and they call it the shack and you're going to go into the shack and over at the shack is a guy named Earl and Earl has got an extra car and he's going to take you down to the other town where your patrol car is being put together. He should be done with it this afternoon. <laughs> and then if you look in the glove box, there's a badge. So, oh my God. And he goes, and then when you get your car, go back up to my house, go knock on the door to my house and talk to my wife, Margaret. And Margaret's going to hand you my extra vest. And then it, and then I have to, and then if you go out to the garage behind the house, there's some extra leather gear and one of them might fit your pistol. So that's, <laughs> that's how I started. Wow. Here's the keys. You're in charge. And like, it wasn't that long ago. Was it eight years ago? Like yeah, that? it was not, it oh, was not oh. long ago. My God. Wow. That's, but, yeah. I mean, but that's, I had to learn really quickly how to talk to people, how to, how to talk my way out of a situation. Like oh, yeah. by myself, I got a vest and no, nothing else but a gun. So like I was lucky I had a vest, you know, so I, I had to learn very quickly how to, how to talk to people, how to get along with people, how to get them to do things that they, they don't necessarily want to do. Yep. Um, and I think that was just vital to my career. And I, and I absolutely, I would never give it up, even though if you, I look back at it and I say, man, that was crazy. <laughs> How did I survive? You right. Know? And, um, and that's, wow. uh, yeah, okay. I wish I, I wish I was making that up, but it, it's true. <laughs> okay. So what's your favorite part of the job? You know, you would think that I would, I would have an answer like that set up, but it, it becomes a, I think it's a feeling. I think, I think we all, especially if you've served in the, in the military, I think when you get out, you look for that again, you know, you look okay. for that feeling of taking your boots off at the end of the day and feeling good about it. You know, I mean, I've worked for my, I've worked for myself for years. I've worked for a private company for years and it just does not feel the same. I have tried to get out of law enforcement. I make great money. <laughs> I've tried and I keep going back. And okay. I don't know why. And, and, and every day I take my boots off, I'm exhausted. My back hurts. I'm tired. I've been up all night. I've been, you know, and it's just, and I may have to fight, I may have had to fight somebody and my adrenaline dump and everything else. And I still, I think it's, I, I'm going back to that feeling, that feeling of just being in service to somebody else, sure. doing the hard thing that somebody else doesn't want to do or can't do. Gotcha. And I think, um, and, you know, and the Bible talks a lot about a lot about the peacemakers, you know, he said, you know, God loves his cops and he loves his, his, his soldiers. And so that's, that's important for me and my faith as well. Okay. So what's your least favorite part of the job? Uh, the bureaucracy. Okay. Um, if, if I, I view a good leader as somebody who does not need to go look for something to correct in order to feel like they are being a leader. Okay. Um, and so we have a lot of that in law enforcement where people who don't have any formal leadership training get put into a leadership position and they think that they must be correcting something in order to be a supervisor. Mm. And so what ends up happening is you get wrapped up in bureaucracy and more red tape and more rules and more memos and everything like that. And when in general, your job is to keep things as a well-oiled machine, keep things moving. And if you get hemmed up on 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 policies to try and plug every hole, 
then everything slows to a, a halt and you look incompetent. And so I cannot stand somebody, um, the micromanagement that comes with that, the bureaucracy. And that just, um, in small departments, we have that too, from, from eight, from outside, like city managers, we have city managers that like to think they run the department and they, oh, okay. And what they'll do is they'll try and run it via the budget. They'll mess sure. with your budget so that, oh, you want that? Well, let's take a look at your budget first, you know? And it's like, you know, can, or last week we got asked for our racial profiling report mm-hmm. that we give to the state from the city. And we told the city, it's none of your freaking business. No, you're not. And you're lucky we even showed you how many tickets and how many warnings we're writing. We write majority warnings, probably by 80, 20 warnings to citations. Okay. So we do write tickets, but it's not, we give that as a courtesy. So I, I don't like when the city likes to step into our business. It's not their business. Let the police department be the police department, you know? Yeah. You know, as far as a leader goes, it'd be a sheriff or a chief or whatever, you know, it's easy or easier to be a leader when times are good. Sure. But when stuff happens and stuff is going to happen when you're a cop, you know, and it becomes politically incorrect or there's a public sentiment that isn't correct because they don't have all the facts in a certain case that really shows, well, does this leader have the guts to do the right thing or the popular thing? Most of the time. And it's purely anecdotal, but in my experience, it has been whatever it takes to save your own skin. Yes. It's, and, it's unfortunate, but you know, yeah. And, and, yeah. I mean, in, in my business, I'm I'm not going to do anything that I should be performing my duties plus those that were originally assigned to me. So as a leader and the ones that originally assigned to me, that is what a leader is supposed to be. You don't pawn off your work. You get less work as a leader and in law enforcement and even in the military. I saw that, too, where people were taking the term delegation and using it to their own advantage. Delegation is not meant to um, is not meant to get you out of work. That's not what delegation means. I've, and, and in very rare instances, I've, I mean, my sergeant right now, great guy, puts out as much work as we do, plus the additional tasks he's got. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what's important to me is can you do both? That is what a leader is supposed to be. And we just don't find that a lot. And it's really, really disheartening. Yeah. So what's your future in law enforcement? Where do you want to be like in 10 years from now? Yeah. So I I, I don't know if I can plan out 10 years. Um, I I for me, it's it's family first. And so once my wife is done with nursing school, I don't know what the world has for me. Um, I do know there are things I want to accomplish first in law enforcement. Like I'm in Texas, we have levels for our license right now. I'm an advanced peace officer. I'm one year from my master peace officer, but that's only because I have a master's degree and military experience. Okay. And so, um, I want to be a master peace officer. I want to design some courses for law enforcement officers to teach them about fitness and report writing, which are two really, really needed areas. Oh yeah. Um, and, the, and there's a huge demand for it. So in Texas, we can teach law enforcement classes, which give credit to your, 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 um, required training each year. Oh, okay. And we can make a decent amount of money from it. I mean, you're talking about sure. two day, a two day class making $250 a head. I mean, that's pretty okay. good. Yeah. That's um, especially if you have some extra. Yeah, especially if you have some expertise. And then um, sure. I want to, I want to, um, I want to build this department up a little bit and actually go over and do, um, a, do uh, looking at some SWAT stuff, some some of that mm-hmm. advanced training. 
Um, so that's kind of on my immediate radar with the next couple of years is to do that. And then just continue to provide for my family until we're like, okay, you know, David, if you want to write full time, you, you can, you know, sure. Or if, if you wanted to, um, I've had that option before, but I wasn't ready as a writer to do that. Mm. I hadn't had myself set up with my business. I was still kind of bouncing around a little bit, but now I'm a little more secure where I could say, if, hey, if my wife said, hey, I'm making good money as a nurse, if you wanted to quit full time and just go back to part time, you can. But right now, we like the money. We like the department. We're, have, we're enjoying it. And I'm sure. getting that fulfillment. So as long as I'm getting that, I, I told the chief, he's like, he's, he asked me, how long do you stick around? I said, as long as it's fun. As okay. long as it's fun. And that's, and I, that way I wasn't lying to him, you know? All right. Let's talk about books. Sure. Now you have published, let's see, your genre is horror and dark fiction. Is that correct? Yeah. And the dark fiction was kind of to all encompassing a little bit. Everything I've written has had, has a darker tone. So I write, I write horror is my genre. That's what I tell people. Horror is my okay. genre. Occasionally I'll bounce out into, um, like I wrote my first series was a dark fantasy series. That was when okay. I was discovering I was actually a horror writer and just didn't know it. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> when did you start writing? When did you get, get the bug? So my bug started when I was very young. I think that's a lot of stories for a lot of the same story for everybody else. Um, but it took a short hiatus. Actually, when I was 12 years old, I entered at a writing contest. Oh, and, okay. And it was me versus this other girl. And the only reason this other girl, I was 12 years old. I remember they took this very seriously. This this other girl, the only reason that she so I went around, I actually would write out my story when everybody else only wrote it, you know, they were writing part time and just to play around with it. I wrote out my story and I'd pass it around my little table of friends for like and mm -hmm. I was I had my own little writing group, didn't even know it. <laughs> Par paragraph by paragraph, you know, and that was at the time I was consuming like a book a day. Like I mean, I was wow. just consuming and consuming. Yeah. And I remember she won because she was friends with the teacher. It was me versus her. And I knew the teacher didn't like me. I knew everybody else, <laughs> everybody else voted and my story was better. And I know this is really anecdotal and really kind of childish, but you know what this, so I took like a hiatus because I felt like I had already researched how to get an agent. I was 12 years old and I was sitting in the library with my floppy disk wow. over there. I was, I was floppy disk era. So I'm still there, you know, a little yeah. bit. And so I was, I took my floppy disk and I'd try and I'd save my, my, my writing to the floppy disk every day. And I'd take it home. It was on my own little flash drive. Wow. And, and, um, and I lost it. I lost it. it uh, not, not not the drive, but the, the drive itself to keep writing. Um, yeah. As 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 young boys grow up and they get interested in going out inside and video sure. games and everything Other else. And yeah. The rise of technology. And then it wasn't until I met my wife to almost, you know, almost 15 years later, you know, and my wife says, you know, we were talking about just who we are, and where we came from. And I was talking yeah. about books. I was like, man, I, I, I hadn't read, but I hadn't read in forever, like sat down and read a book. Yeah. You know, I was still like playing video games. The time I was like 24 years old and I was like, man, I need to stop doing this. This is a waste <laughs> of my time. Can I create something? You know, can I build something? Sure, I was really sure. into like entrepreneurship at the time. So I was, mm -hmm. I was building my fitness business, you know, and, and, um, and she, and, and I, and I told her about when I was young about the story and I was like, I had the story in my mind since I was a kid. She goes, well, write the damn thing. And so right about at that time, I remember I was scrolling through Facebook and it said something like become a published author. And it was Mr. Mark Dawson's ad. <laughs> that hit, that, okay. That hit me, and 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 I saw it, and I stuffed it aside. I, I I remember I saved it. I stuffed the ad aside, and then I went and bought Scrivener. And I said, if this is this is this the software. Oh wow, this that's a big leap. Okay, this is going to help me be a writer. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to yeah. buy Scrivener. You know, I don't got you know I don't need a notepad. I've got Scrivener. You know, and so <laughs> and I and I said I I looked at my wife and I said I'm going to write this damn book in a month. 
I said, I'm going to write me a tome. I'm going to write me a hundred thousand word epic fantasy because that's what I thought I was going to write. I thought I was an epic fantasy writer because I was reading epic fantasy. Sure, sure. Ever since I was a kid, like I would, I mean, I, if it had a seven book series and it was like this, this big <laughs> backed up, like, I don't know if you can see my shelf behind me. I got nothing but, but epic fantasy series from when I was a kid. I got those all, all back there. Okay. Um, I still read epic fantasy. I love it. Um, but I, I, I was like, I'm gonna write this book. And then that's when I realized I was like, okay, I'm, I'm at the cusp here. I wrote this book and I was like, now I want to publish it. Now I want people to read it. I don't want to just write it. Like I want people sure. to read it too. Sure, you know? And sure. so I remember I was at a cusp. This was right before COVID hit. I had bought all my equipment. I was actually going to, I had, I was training at a gym and I had all these clients. This is when I was a personal trainer, but I still written a book. Um, I had all these clients and I was like, I'm about to move all these clients over to my gym. I'm going to take them to my gym. I bought my equipment. I was about to put a down payment on a lease and 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 I remember in that moment I said, I think I'm done with the service industry. I think I'm done. And okay. I sold my gym. I sold my equipment. And I and I used that. And I bought Mark Dawson's classes. And then I went full in on this first book. I mean, I bought professional covers and editing thousands. And I bought all the all, all the setup that I needed, all the yeah. software, publisher rocket, and everything. Mm-hmm. And sold fifty bucks worth. <laughs> uh, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> but I think that's everybody's story. I think that's what yeah. everybody almost does, there, except for the rare cases. Yeah, there's the rare um, unicorns where you you knock it out of the park on your first book. Yeah. Other than and that, so, your first book is learning experience. Yes. And first, second, and third. Um, and oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I started dabbling in horror at the time. I wrote my, I, I started a writer's group based on fantasy. We were all fantasy readers, uh, writers and readers. We're still to get together today. Three, uh, they're over three years now. Um, mm. Uh, I think there's over a hundred books published between us all. I mean, oh, wow. there's, I okay. mean, we, we have written some books. Um, yeah. and I remember at one point, one of my, one of the readers, uh, one of the writers in the group, he was also wrote fantasy, but he's like, you know, I've been reading your dark fantasy and I, I think you're a horror writer. I was like, I don't know. I've never, I like horror. I've written, I've read Stephen King. I've, I've read a lot yeah. of horror and I watch horror movies and I really, and it doesn't really phase me too much. It's not like people get scared and stuff like, but it just doesn't, I don't know if it's the cop in me, but it doesn't really phase me. <laughs> and um, he said, why don't you write a horror short story? And I was like, okay. And so I did. And he read it and he said, you're a horror writer. <laughs> okay. And so I, I published my first horror book and then my seventh, and now I'm up to 17 or something like that. Outstanding. So I've done 17 books in three years. Um, wow. So 17 books in three years, I'm assuming you write every day. Do you have like a word count goal that you try to strive for? Or what does that look like? I used to, I was doing 3000 words a day. Um, and that was, it was putting it because I like my chapter length at about 1500 words. I really enjoy that. Um, okay. It's just, it just meets with my writing. My books run about 50 to 70,000 words. Sometimes it's a little bit yeah. above that, but not too long. Okay. Um, so I really like the 1500 words. And then I changed my plotting method. Um, over to a different style of writing. And so that gave me a little more, I wouldn't say wiggle room, but I was probably putting a subconscious writing cap on my word count, but the mm. 1500 words, because it was convenient. I'd write one chapter, another chapter, that's sure. th- two chapters a day. And so when I switched over this plotting method, um, which is, uh, it, it's it's more akin to what a horror book does. It does a little bit different than than I think most books, the the path that mm-hmm. the the heroes take and that sort of thing. Um, so when I switched over that, it kind of opened the doors, the floodgates, I guess you could say. And so now I aim for an average word count throughout the month instead of tracking it every day. It was just burning me out, looking at it every day saying, oh, man, I missed it yesterday. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I missed it. 
I hated that. And so I aim for a book a month. So between 50 and 70,000 words a month. That's, that's my goal. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. I was looking at your uh, website, which is very well put together. I was looking at your, your book covers. Those are very eye appealing. Who does your covers? So that is um, the cover collection. Her name is Debbie. She's really sweet. Um, Mm. And um, one of my books, I actually wrote a sci-fi book um, with it's, it's for a Kickstarter and it's very specific marketing plan behind it. It's more of a strategic business move than it was for my horror. Cause it's very much not horror, but yeah. I imagine that some of my influence from horror kind of fits into there for the atmosphere and space and stuff. But mm. um, when I went and ordered that cover, I said, can I, I, w- I wonder if there's a difference between like premium covers, like premium top dollar designers and premium top level editors. So like I paid three times the editing price that I normally did for top tier, top rated, I mean, mm-hmm. and same thing with the cover. And so I put a lot of money into this book and I said, is there a difference? And then the the cover designer, Stuart Bache, he actually said, he actually recommends the cover to collection for those who are not able to get to him. And so her name is okay. Debbie. And that's who I use for all those covers. So when I reskinned everything, cause I had originally some cheap covers from get covers and they're great. Sure. Yeah, they're yeah. great for getting started. And they, mm-hmm. they've actually, I still have some of their covers. I kept them because there's, they still do the port, the, the, they still do the, the, the job. Yeah. Um, but when I switched over and I rebranded and I got with, with Debbie and got these covers made, man, it just made all the difference. So cool. the cover collection, that's who I would go to. Now, as far as your marketing strategy, sure. what do you think works best for you? Ads uh, or a combination of things? What, what works for you as far as selling books? So, I mean, I, I run a series, of course. Um, I, I write with a series in mind. I've written standalones. Um, I, I'm actually the Facebook marketing manager for uh, a, uh, a publisher called Incubator Books. Um, they do crime thrillers and domestic thrillers. And their methodology, which is new to me, uses Facebook ads at a loss to tune the algorithm. It's kind of interesting. Sure. But I wanted to give that a try for standalone books um, for... Um, so I, number one, I write with a series that, that goes for a standalone process. I, I plan to try in the future. Um, but, uh, I run Facebook ads only to my mailing list. I only run that. Um, and that's where I found the most success. I've run Facebook ads at a new launch and I can only make them tick at 99 cents, but I don't, um, I, I don't try to, uh, run sales ads on, on Amazon, uh, or, uh, I've, I've run Amazon ads before and I've run a lot of them and I've run, um, uh, uh, I've used a professional agency who's had some good success with Amazon to try and give it a try for him. He couldn't make a tick horror is a weird, okay. weird genre, but I found the most, the biggest investment because is, is my list. And so I invest all of my marketing money into my list. I spend about three to $500 a month. on building it. I end up with about a thousand to 1500 subs per month. Okay. Um, and so when I launch a new book, each one is just exponentially bigger. I mean, it's just, I made more money last month on my last launch than I ever have. Um, Good. So, and Good for you. after that, it kind of, it kind of peters out. It kind of trickles yeah, out because sure. there's not a lot of sustained sales because um, at the top levels of Amazon for when it comes to horror, it's dominated by a couple of names. I'm pretty sure you could probably guess them, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the nature of the game. So I'm, right. I'm kind of in production now. I, where I just produce a book, I launch it, I make my money back and more. I, and I'm okay with that. But at the same time, I'm looking for sustainability. And what I found is as I'm running people through my list to get onto my list, that they are going in to buy my other books. And so there is a level of income that comes with that as well. So that's helping. But I weaponize my list. I send them out and said, hey, um, uh, let's, uh, 
let, let's 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 go to this my buddy's page. I'm gonna buy everybody on who wants a copy of of his book. I'm gonna buy you all a copy and leave reviews. And so I'll send them out, my team out. You know, I'll send several. I'll send ten thousand people out to go yeah. buy this book and, and oh, review wow. it, or get a free book out of it, or whatever. It's a free yeah. book to go leave reviews to. And so I use them for that. I'll use them for names. I'll use them for giveaways, and that'll just help mm. the growth. And so I I use them as much as I can. Um, I don't ever have to pick names and covers. I have them pick the covers that they like. Okay. I have stories lined up. I have the covers that I pick for the stories. I let them choose the cover. Oh, and sweet. then I like and they vote on it. Yeah. So yeah. it's that's my list cool. is it. And when I say that's it, it's not like it's paramount. I mean, like, that's all I do. So. Okay. <laughs> so as far as your future in publishing, what sure. do you see? Are you going to stay with horror, you think? Or wh- what would you like to do? Um. So at this point, it's. I, I want to be a horror writer. Um, I want to um, I want to be known within the community. If somebody said, look, I said, it's I, it's not that I don't think my books are good. They just need the eyes on it. And I want I want to be able to deliver good horror stories. Um, and so I really appreciate the genre because I can study it like I'm studying horror right now. My MFA for my thesis, I am okay. studying the psychology behind it. So I enjoy the emotion. I enjoy the connections and the and the idea of fear and things like that. Um <clears throat> So I, I'd like to be in horror. I'd like to be able to hopefully be an inspiration to other indie authors who are jumping into horror and say, look, there, we may have to do things differently than everybody else, but we don't need to quit. There's a lot of horror authors that have said, or a lot of authors said, I wrote a horror book. It didn't work. So I wrote thrillers instead, mm. or I write, I see this paranormal, what do they call it? Paranormal thrillers. That sounds like horror to me, just a different name, you know, sure. paranormal, you know, and so and so it's I, I want to see horror become more mainstream than it has been in the past. And so I plan on being there. I don't plan on leaving. I plan okay. on doing what it takes to make it work. Um, I'm interested in direct sales. I think a lot of people have been talking about direct lately. Oh, yeah. Um, and so uh, for a long term sustainable business, I'm I'm kind of working on that in the background. So and the other thing is, too, is that horror is a very small community, but it's voracious. And so if you can capture up those small pieces eventually it builds a bigger piece of the pie. I mean, a lot of businesses won't turn a profit for three years. I should be comfortable with that. And so I'm at three years and I'm just in the black. And so that's that works for me. I mean, I've made my right. money back and more. So now it's pure profit as long as I don't let my expenses go too high. So I have found something that works. And so I'm just going to double down. All right. So you have a podcast. Tell us about that. I do. Yeah. So I've got the, um, I call it the Nightmare Engine podcast because I am terrified of trains. Um, <laughs> okay like old locomotives um mm. like uh, like the the metro and stuff is fine um but old locomotives is just i i won't touch it i won't go near it don't ask me to get in it um <laughs> okay uh and so it's the nightmare engine podcast we interview horror writers um who've got a couple of books out maybe a following and we um uh we are reader facing and so it's all about um, the information, the cool stuff that we can talk about as writers to the reader. And so if you like reading horror books, I tell people jump on that podcast. Um, but if, uh, if you're looking for probably for like marketing advice, like you might find snippets, but it's not really something that we're going to do okay. all the time. So we really like to reach the readers and that's who it's for. Sweet. Now there is a magazine called Indie Author Magazine. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You're uh, writing with them now, correct? I am. Yeah. So I, uh, I submitted my first article and lo and behold, it's on fitness stuff. So that's kind of, I guess that fits. Um, <laughs> yeah, I met, um, I met one of their writers. She actually lives 15 minutes down the, down the road from me I oh, met wow. her a couple of years ago. And, okay. and she was, she said that she was a writer for them. And, um, I remember there was an, oh, somebody posted an opening 
And so I, I uh, did a quick interview and, um, and chatted with those folks over there. They're very sweet. Um, Shell and Nicole, they're great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got a lot of good advice in that magazine for anybody who's interested in indie publishing. I mean, it's really, really cool. And it's, it's reasonable. You're talking $3 a subscription. I mean, come on. We're, I mean, you're going to spend that on a cup of coffee you know, every right. day. You know, so at, I, I, um, I wrote my first article for them and I hope there's going to be more in the future, but yeah, I, um, anything I can do in the community, I want to be there. These are my people. I've been in the fitness community for 10 years and I tell you what, it is cutthroat in the Indian community. It is not, it is so no, sweet. Every, everybody, everybody wants to help everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's like, can I give you more free information here? Right. I, I want you to be successful. Be big here. Like here's everything I know how to do. I post everything I can about about horror on 20 books. I post everything that I can, everything that I know, because I'm willing to take a risk and try different things in horror that I don't know if anybody else is willing to do. They mostly people by this point, 17 books in, they quit. They go to write a different genre. Sure. And I'm not about that. I, I, if I know there are a couple of indie authors who are doing well, if they can do it, there are people at the top who are doing it. If they can do it, why can't I? And so that's, that's where I'm at with it. Well, I think that's a good place for us to finish. Where can people learn more about you and your books? Where can they go? Yeah. So um, my name is, uh, is spelled, you know, exactly how it sounds. David Virguts, V-I-E-R-G-U-T-Z. I tell people to go to my website first. Go to my website first. Poke around. All my books are there. You can get a couple of free books from me. There's a free audio book from me. My podcast is there. Everything is centralized on my website. And then um, to hear about kind of my weekly, my day-to-day, I always tell people, hop on my newsletter. Just come talk to me there. I promise I answer every email personally. I, I, I read every single one. I don't have an assistant. Um, and then if you want to read my books, signed copies, of course, best come through for me, uh, uh, through me, uh, through email. And then um, if you want to just buy my books on Amazon, most of them are there, including uh, audiobooks. And so uh, just my name, type my name and David Bergutz, and that's it. They'll all be there. All right. I will put links. I'll put a link to your uh, website because it sounds like that's your central location where people can find all the good stuff, your podcast and everything else. Outstanding. Well, David, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Patrick. It's nice to meet you earlier this year, by the way. That was was really kind of cool. Yeah, that's right. It's 20 books. It was a lot of fun. My guest on the show today was author, podcast host, and police officer David Vergutz. Thank you, David, for your insights on small-town policing and being a horror author. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you please take a minute and rate and review the show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support, and, of course, let's be careful out there. (laughs) 